Hello everyone, this is Gary Smith and I want to thank you for joining the Arizona Cannabis Bar Association for this year's bar convention. Due to pandemic, obviously things are very different than they usually are. We'd be presenting this live, actually back in August, but uh, pandemic kind of prevented that. So hopefully you'll appreciate this video version and we'll try to get you all the same quality information as we do, even when we're together. And uh, assuredly, next year, well, I shouldn't say assuredly because we can't really tell, but hopefully next year we will all be together. But for now, please sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. And to start off, as we always do with each year's bar convention, I provide a slight industry update of the happenings of the last year. So let's dive in, shall we? There are two deaths that happened in the last few months that we wanted to bring to your attention. The first one, which occurred some months ago, was Michael Weiser. I appreciate that perhaps not everybody in our audience knows who Michael was, but Michael was one of the lead voices in Arizona cannabis over the last decade. He was a local director of Normal and also was probably the loudest voice in the room at any given moment on the topic of legalization of cannabis as medicine. We lost Michael this year, and, and there's a hole now in the cannabis space that he used to fill, and his presence is missed, and he was dearly loved. And if you didn't get a chance to know Michael, you missed a unique individual, and uh, hopefully his legacy will live on. The other death, which happened just two days ago, was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, Justice of the Supreme Court, and I need not express the importance that she played in American jurisprudence. Also, if you can tell by my reference that this is a death that occurred two days ago, uh, this recording is actually being made on September 21st. Due to the changes in the bar convention, we had to submit by video and do it early. So this presentation is being made in late September. Anyway, Justice Ginsburg, as we all can appreciate, was an absolute giant of the court, and uh, her passing is only 48 hours and the country is reeling right now. So at the time you watch this video, I have no idea what's going to emerge on the other side, but I hope all ends well. A brief glimpse at the last year. There was a lot of activity and yet not a lot of activity. 
the pandemic, which we'll get into in a little bit, had its impact on cannabis, but not so much against it as much as revealing kind of its strength. But here's a brief glimpse of just some of the highlights. The big things were, of course, uh, last year's reintroduction of hemp into uh, licit status, courtesy of the Farm Bill. And that brought us in October 2019, the USDA releasing its hemp guidelines, which, of course, was promptly followed in May of 2020 by the USD, USDA releasing revised hemp guidelines. Not unexpected. This is new territory. The growing of hemp in our country hasn't been around for many, many decades. And it's not so much a reinvention of something as much as an invention of something. And with new laws and new industries, a little turbulence along the regulatory way is expected. And I wouldn't at all be surprised if there were yet further revisions later this year or early next year from USDA. Uh, additionally, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, the Proposition 207 Recreational Marijuana Initiative here in Arizona survived a Supreme Court challenge. Uh, again, I'm recording this in September, and you're not listening to this until December, so I have no idea as I'm sitting here how the election will shake out. But just a few weeks ago, there was a th mortal threat to the initiative even being on the ballot, but it survived. And then the last point for 2020 is that Arizona's patients have increased now to 275,000 registered patients. Now, as I do every year, I give you a little side-by-side -side demonstration of, of where Arizona's statistics reside. And as always, I'm lifting these directly from reports from the Department of Health Services. And in this instance, I have March 2019 in the left column, juxtaposed with August 2020 in the right column. If the August profiles are difficult to read, I apologize for that. These are lifted directly from DHS's own reports. I, I literally copied and pasted them. And for whatever reason, 2020 was the year that DHS decided to go black and white. So um, I personally missed the color. It was certainly more legible in the reports. And if you feel likewise, maybe let DHS know you like colors better than black and white. But in any event, let's take a quick tour to some of the numbers. And this first uh, juxtaposed chart is, of course, just raw numbers of patients and cardholders. But 2020 offers a new category of cardholder called lab agent. And to remind you all, last year, the Arizona legislature passed a new law mandating testing for cannabis, which in turn created a new class of cardholder called a lab agent. And it's exactly what it sounds like. Lab agents are the folks who work in labs and test cannabis, but they needed their own special license in order to be able to do that, which is why you now see this license appearing on the scoreboard. But of course, the, the, the most significant thing to look at is just the overall numbers of cardholders and in particular patients. And as you can see, between roughly a year and a half ago and August 2020, again, March 2019 through August 2020, uh, Arizona's roster increased by over 75,000. This next chart shows the patient characteristics. Now, a very nice thing that DHS did for the first time this year was break this out not just by age, but also by age and gender. So if you look at the March 2019 box, what you're going to see is DHS historically just gave you ages and then separately just gave you uh, genders and gave you total counts. Now you can see how those counts break down, not just by age, but by age cross-reference with gender. And the interesting observation, and I don't know what to take from it, 
is that while women are strongly represented across all categories, they are still, across the board, fewer than men. What is the cause for that? I have no idea. That's for statisticians and medical professionals to figure out. Okay, next chart is um, the qualifying condition profiles. And this is a list of, of course, all the statutory bases that one could apply for to obtain a patient card. And as you can see, the, the numbers have increased uh, across all categories between March of 2019 and August 2020, but not in surprising ways, except for a few. And, and the, the two I wanted to point to, um, if you looked second to the top is cachexia, which is sort of a, sort of a catch-all term for chronic wasting. And a year and a half ago, Arizona only had 127 patients registered with cachexia, but here now in August 2020, that number has increased to 536. I don't know what the cause of that is, but that's almost a 500% increase. And it's unusual when you look at the flow of these numbers. Now, it could be due to just how people are categorizing themselves on their application. So, for example, cachexia is a, a side... Uh, effect of a number of different maladies, such as cancer, which is another item that appears as a qualifying condition. It could also be a, a side effect of nausea uh, or a number of these other maladies, including pain. Um, so it might just boil down to how people are checking the box on their form, but I noticed it enough that I thought to mention it to you. The next chart is uh, the breakdown by county. How is Arizona responding to medical marijuana county by county. And overall, the numbers are not shocking. It's um, revealing that the populations of Maricopa County continue to kind of lead the, the four, but that also makes logical sense because those are where the population centers are. But if you take a look at Pima and Pinal County, both of those counties had a decided spike upward in the number of cardholders. I don't know what the reason for that is either, but clearly cannabis is much more popular now in those counties, and it might be due simply to people just growing more comfortable with it and being less inhibited to sign up for the program and give it a try. But I point this out in case somebody has uh, more insight than I do. Now, the uh, next chart here is the breakdown of type and poundage of material sold. And DHS tracks marijuana, meaning the, the flower, uh, marijuana edible being, of course, things you would eat in the form of like brownies and drinks and stuff. And then marijuana other, uh, which I assume means vape cartridges and the like, but I'm not exactly sure what DHS means when they say other. But the important thing when you're looking at this particular slide these are not annualized numbers. These numbers are strictly for the months listed. So you've got March of 2019 and August of 2020. The prior slides were all annualized numbers. These are just these months. And what we see is that a year and a half ago, Arizona was selling about 5,000 pounds less marijuana than it's selling today. But when you take a look and juxtapose that against the fact that 75,000 more patients have signed on, it's not difficult to account for that 5,000 pounds. All right, 
Now, since we're heading into election season, and again, I'm recording this in September. By the time you're listening to this, the election will have happened. We do have a recreational bill on the ballot. I don't know how the election's going to go, and I don't know what's going to appear on the other side. But I reached out and grabbed this chart from Marijuana Business Daily just to give you an idea of how our neighbor to the north is responding to its recreational program. And as you can see, sales are briskly up on a steady basis. Uh, basis excuse me. And uh, the numbers have climbed now to $231 million Canadian. That's, that's a big number, and I don't know what Arizona is going to do in comparison to an entire nation, but uh, this is an interesting portent. Now, this was the chart that really got me kind of uh, excited, and I, I wanted you to see this as well, because it suggests two things, uh, that marijuana is recession-proof and also pandemic-proof. And, and in fairness to that, if you look at this chart, there's no reference whatsoever to the recession or recessionary effects, but we all know that we're already in recession that's been on the news. But this chart does show you the demarcator with that red line that's running vertically that tells you kind of when the pandemic was finally being responded to in mid-March is about when the different states started going into lockdown. So that's a good demarcator. And then when you look to the right of that vertical line, you see the consumption rate suddenly dip down, uh, skitter and bounce, and then pop back up and sort of restabilize, which makes sense because this you can almost track how the country responded to recession, went into lockdown, everybody's hiding out. So, of course, consumption and acquisition went down temporarily. But if you look, it barely makes it through April before it sort of renormalizes and stabilizes. So for investors, that, of course, is an incredibly exciting chart. Uh, other things going on. So the Safe and Fair Enforcement Banking Act, the SAFE Act, it actually passed in the House in September of last year, and here I am talking to you now in September of 2020, and it's flat out stalled. And what the Safe Banking Act proposes to do is essentially normalize banking for cannabis businesses. Uh, if for whatever reason you're brand new to cannabis or cannabis law, what you might not appreciate yet is that because of federal law, there's no way for these marijuana businesses to engage in normal banking practices with normal banks. It's very hard to get banking in marijuana land. So this Safe Banking Act was meant and is still meant to allow banks to engage with marijuana businesses and vice versa. Unfortunately, it stalled out. And my supposition is that nothing is going to get done with this until after the election. So again, as I'm sitting here taping this, uh, this is stalled. It's going nowhere. I don't predict it to go anywhere. But maybe by the time you're listening to this, something will have moved. My suspicion, though, it's going to probably pick up again after the next president is sworn in. Uh, and we don't know who that's going to be. But we'll all wait and watch. Uh, another thing that happened in the last year, th this was uh, kind of cannabis's early earthquake the vape crisis, which very quickly flashed up and very quickly disappeared. But it was quite serious and, and not to be underappreciated because it was the first time that a cannabis industry faced a products liability problem, a massive problem. And, and basically what was happening around the country, there were these random patients showing up in emergency rooms and hospitals with 
uh, a variety of, of problems, principally lung trauma, resulting from use of vape pens and cartridges. Well, turns out that the CDC was finally able to drill down and discover that it was the inclusion of a, a vitamin E oil being used as a thickening agent in sort of cheaper quality cannabis cartridges. And as a result, it seems to have now solved the problem because now people aren't putting vitamin E into these cartridges, or at least they shouldn't be. Um, but we're not really sure <laughs> what the long-term uh, effect of this is or, or how it's still going on right now because as soon as the pandemic hit, the CDC's priorities turned away from studying this uh, to deal with COVID full-time, which I think everybody can appreciate. So while I suspect the vape crisis is officially over, there might be some lingering effect. So keep your eyes open and, and see what you see. And for those of you in the audience who might be personal injury lawyers, uh, this might get you excited. Okay, the other hot button item coming up um, into 2021 and beyond is social equity. And this is kind of a new topic for a lot of people. And what social equity is, is a legislative or regulatory addressing of past societal ills related to discrimination and racism. And what social equity is supposed to do is look at that problem and figure ways within this new industry, how it might be able to do things in a positive fashion to try to re-level the playing field or, or create some sort of, well, social equity as the name calls. And as you see across the chart here, all the way back to 2012 through 2019, and, and the dark blue means no program whatsoever, the light blue means, yeah, kind of a program. For years, it's been sort of struggling along, struggling along. Come 2016, it started to switch on and then still kinds of limps along. But Arizona's recreational initiative, Prop 207, does contain a social equity component to it. So if Prop 207 has passed, and again, I'm recording this before the election, so I have no idea, but if it passes, there is a social equity component that will reserve 25 licenses that will be available to be distributed on a social equity premise. Now, the the struggle there, of course, is the statutes leave the, the social equity components of the program a little undefined uh, by intention so that regulations can be created post-election to address this. And in that effort, you're going to have a lot of hot contests to get on the board in order to be part of the group that's going to decide these things. And then, of course, the actual rules that will qualify. Who's going to be permitted to be considered? What sort of criteria is involved in, in qualifying for social equity? And what kind of social equity perk or benefit or, or the equivalent will be given? All of these are open-ended questions. Now, make no mistake, we're talking about 25 licenses, which in today's market are valued at approximately $10 million each. I realize that's not what one pays DHS to obtain the license, but when these businesses are operating and, and sold intact with a management company, etc., you're talking $10 million a pop. So 25 licenses represents roughly $250 million on a bad day. So you can readily imagine that this is going to be a place where people are going to want to come in and, and aggressively fight for territory. So 2021, my prediction, it's going to be a bloodbath as people try to jockey for position in this social equity sector. 
Anyway, that's the intro for this year. We've got a lot of good speakers coming up, so I wanted to keep it short, and I appreciate your time and attention. Uh, to remind you all, I am the current president and one of the founding directors of the Arizona Cannabis Bar Association. The panelists today are all, with I think only two exceptions, members of our association, and we've been around since 2016. We are absolutely rabidly devoted to the ethical practice of cannabis law here in Arizona, and our mission is public outreach and education, and we invite you to join us. Uh, we did, I didn't update this slide, so I apologize for that, but we did raise our dues. We used to be $50 a year, but now it's $100 a year, but understand it's for a good cause. The uh, extra $50 is being spent on updating and upgrading the Cannabis Bar Association website. And we're adding a bunch of new components, including a private library that's members only. So if you haven't joined us yet, that's a huge enticement, and I do encourage you to. Anyway, thanks, and enjoy the rest of the bar convention. Have a question about psychedelics and the law? You're welcome to submit them. Please send your questions to admin at psychedelicalex.com. Submission of questions is not an assurance that they will be used on the show. Also, please be aware that neither the submission of a question nor a response creates an attorney-client privilege between you and the show's host, nor does an answer constitute legal advice. Information provided is for general purposes only. If you need legal counsel, you should hire competent counsel in your community. Thank you.